This is my conversation with Chris Patel. Chris is an expert within the healthcare scene, currently focusing his main role on AI technologies and new integration of platforms to aid and create efficiencies within the healthcare area. There's so much value within this podcast, specifically in the relation to data, the use of a digital twin, issues with the current healthcare scene and why he believes Palantir will be fundamental towards the healthcare scene and many other industries in the near future. I highly recommend you listen to the whole podcast. It's available on Spotify and on YouTube when we release a new podcast without question every single Wednesday at 12 a.m. GMT. This podcast is amazing. You can find Chris on YouTube and on Twitter. Links will be provided below. Amazing content. Please watch the whole thing. Thank you so much. Lots of love. Okay, let's go. Okay, um, welcome back to my podcast. I'm Christian, the founder of Dantons. I'm a media company that I'm developing, as well as doing podcasts and YouTube. Um, and today we have a really interesting guest, Chris Patel. I'm sure everyone knows him um, from the Palantir community. And I can't wait to speak about Palantir. We have lots to talk about. And hopefully I can ask you some interesting questions that I haven't asked anyone else. Um, I was doing, doing some research today on the tech scene in general and my thoughts on if it can become like a winner takes all market, um, Palantir at least. Tell me then, just before we, we get into it, tell me where I can find you. Tell everyone where they can find you, who you are and what you do. Yeah, you you can find me either on uh, Twitter or YouTube or both. Um, you know, just go search for Chris Patel. Uh, I think I've made enough videos to this point where I, I rank pretty pretty much up there. But um, but yeah, it's just Chris Patel 99. So either, either platform you can find me. Yeah, it's great to speak to you, man. Um, Tell me then, the, the news dropped yesterday by Codestrap um, that he's going to be having Foundry in his hands, um, a first-on kind of approach. What was your initial reaction? I mean, from my perspective at least, major criticism that I saw was that people were scared to invest in Palantir because they haven't used a the product, they haven't had hands-on experience. But now the tide seems to be shifting in terms of perhaps creators and, and people who are invested having an ability to get their hands on Palantir. So, so what's your initial thought um, and benefit to the community? What do you think? I think it's great. I think it's opening up the platform to um, other people outside of just the regular core enterprise people, because you have to remember with right now, the world is changing in terms of investing. A lot more retail investors are starting to get into the mix, right? So you can see right now, almost 65% of the total float is, um, controlled by retail investors, right? Yeah. So one of the things is retails, not only are retail investors investing, but we're also part of a larger ecosystem of the economy. So what happens is as we see things, we also bring bring the attention to other parts of our job. Like for, for me, like I brought this, because of my involvement with Palantir and understanding what it can do, I'm actually able to communicate that with certain people in my organization that are looking to have um, a platform that can achieve the goals that, Pla that Palantir has, right? So if you think about it, all the people that you've spoken to so far, you know, they are people who are in an industry that could actually use Palantir Foundry, right? It's not, it, yeah, there's plenty of people that may not be in the tech space, but there's tons of people in the tech space that see the value in this and are, are channeling those connections and bringing Palantir to the forefront, right? So I think I think this is a great, uh, great move by Palantir in starting to have an organic developer community start. And I think Codestrap especially is like the right person to lead it because he was the, initially the first person to really put that idea out there. So you know, the synthesis of this whole project was Codestrap's idea that, hey, you know, if there isn't a proper developer community that that you're able to showcase your product, people are not going to be aware of it. And if they're not aware of it, it you're, you're, you're losing out on um, the potential to actually create some verticals in um, uh, organically. So I think I think this community was definitely something that was needed. There is one thing that I would say I am a little bit hesitant on, on the Palantir for Foundry thing. And that's only because this is not an approach that traditionally a lot of people go with when mm -hmm. it comes to software sales. Software sales, what tends to happen is they give you a lot of free stuff, but they really focus in on, on, 
um, like IT folk and people within an organization, they don't necessarily go to retail investors to do it. Um, and, and, you know, but, but who knows, like, like I said, right now, a lot of people are probably going to reach out to coach strap after these videos and say, Hey, listen, do you mind, um, showing me what this product can do? I kind of have an idea. Um, and I've glimpsed at some of the, uh, some of the aspects of it. And I can tell you it, it's, it's pretty game changing and it's going to be revolutionary. So yeah, I think it's a great move. Yeah, I, I think we shouldn't underestimate the power of retail. Um, I mean, even what we're doing now, like the ability to just communicate with those people and converge on ideas and get different opinions, I think is so powerful and definitely shouldn't be taken as, as like a trivial joke or something. I mean, I've spoken to CodeStrap, I've spoken to so many different viewpoints and, and I've heard all these different views and it's I, I just can't get enough. And it's so interesting just to hear everyone's perspective, their background. So actually, I think it's, yes, it's an unconventional method to business, but actually like that's what Palantir is, right? They're, they're unconventional by nature. They have this really strange, unique approach to business, but it, it seems to be working so far, um, which is really fascinating. Did you want to say something there? Yeah, I was going to say the one thing I found really interesting in yesterday's podcast was I was very observant of a lot of the comments that were coming through. We didn't exactly put a lot of them up because, you know, when you're trying to do a live podcast with people and there's so many interesting questions, you know, you can almost get lost in the questions. But there were a lot of technical people on that podcast that were asking a lot of technical questions around regression modeling and all these other mm -hmm. AI and ML initiatives. So you can see that the people who are actually engaged in, in a lot of the discussions that we have, they're not just, you know, when are we going to the moon? Yeah, you know, they're yeah. like, oh, how can I actually use this product, right? They're asking the right questions. And that's the thing. When you're building a community, yes, you want the investors, but you also want the folk on the technical side that want to kind of bring this to the forefront of, uh, of, um, of the industry. So I think Palantir is positioning themselves um, in a much much more broader way before their focus was a lot more narrow in that they only wanted to kind of touch on large um, enterprise customers. Now they're starting to see the value in reaching out to, you know, smaller companies, smaller areas, and then having them organically promote the product. Because then what happens is once you develop all these use cases, I can tell you from my personal experience, large corporations and large SaaS players, the one thing that they're not very good at is creating new use cases because they're kind of almost locked into this monolithic way of thinking that what we have is good and you you need to use our product in this way small up-and-coming companies that are trying to disrupt things they're trying to like do everything possible so they're creating new use cases all over the place and that's that's essentially one of the one of the great things about palantir for uh, builders that we saw was that all these new companies are coming across and saying hey listen this has been a challenge in my industry and i have 20 years in uh, experience in my industry but i want to create a company and i want to use palantir as the backbone of that and actually disrupt the industry that I come from because I've seen these problems. And that's kind of this, that's kind of the same thing that's happening to me right now, where I, I work in healthcare IT. Okay. And I can tell you, healthcare IT, there is a lot of waste out there um, that we need to figure out how to um, how to basically, I won't say get rid of, but basically organize so that this way we can gain efficiencies. Uh, long term from them. Now, how does that happen? Well, one, I could just, you know, try to lobby my CIO into making some changes, you know, changing things around locally, but it's really hard. But if instead I was able to create a product, present it to my CIO and say, hey, look, this is what we used to do. And this is what I can do in a very short period of time. You know, the CIO is going to say, wow, this is a product. You know, I want to, I want, let's, let's use it. Let's make it some, into something. And this is some this can provide a vertical for someone like me to maybe even start another company mm. and actually be entrepreneurial and say, hey, look, this has been a challenge for us for the last 20 years. I've solved the problem and this is the platform that I use to do it. And I think that's what's happening. A lot of people are probably reaching out to Palantir as we speak to say, hey, you know, give me, I, I don't have I don't have the funding right now to buy the thick product, but I want to use certain parts of your of your of your um, platform so that I can build upon it so that one day I could possibly have a very interesting product that can that can literally disrupt so many things. So Palantir can really build those 
build that community out via this Codestrap initiative? And I hope they do, because it, it's going to be very interesting. Well, I had a podcast with Codestrap, and it's coming out on Wednesday um, on YouTube and Spotify. And one thing he said to me that I thought it's kind of stuck in my head is Palantir at the moment and historically have been focused on building their software for number one, large governments, and then they went towards large corporations and they've kind of slowly moved down, but they're still not at the really small scale of like small, small startups. At least at least they haven't finalized their, their product there. Um, and the developer community, in my view, will enable organic growth from the bottom up. Um, and this should definitely not be like blown away and, and treated as nothing. I think this is such an important change that has happened. Um, and through developers, you know, testing the products and actually using the product hands on, like you said, huge power in this. I mean, Codestruck would probably go and tell his um, his boss or something or, or, or someone that he works for about the product and the word spreads. And once again, you mentioned how the retail investors like the, asking technical questions in the comments. Again, the, the power of the internet is absolutely crazy. Some people I've met through the podcast already, like CEOs are very technical people. Incredible how much reach you can get you can get on here. So I think it's, it's an amazing unconventional approach. And, and I'm I think it's a great move for Palantir. You mentioned just um, you, you work in healthcare. Can you just explain yeah. a bit about your background? Did you go to university? Did, do you have a degree? Sure, in sure. Yeah. So, so my degree originally is from bio, is in biochemistry, but I ended up pivoting to the army afterward. I worked at a pharmaceutical company. Did not like it. Um, I needed to just do something else. So I joined the military at the time. I was still really young. Um, you know, I did my service, and then I started working in um, healthcare. And initially I was in radiology. So I, I worked my way up through the radiology tech side and I was a x-ray tech, CT tech, MRI tech, IR tech, all the good stuff. But, you know, and then I eventually became a manager. Um, once I became a manager, did quality assurance on top of it. And then I started working with specific radiology softwares. And then at that time I was working with uh, a few big companies who had just sold us software that were supposed to make our lives easier. And at that point, you know, because of my vast experience, you know, one of the things that they did very poorly was they didn't do a very good job of teaching the, the product itself. And that was mainly because the people that they had hired to do the training were people that were non, non healthcare users, right? I mean, imagine right now telling, a, a you know, a non nurse to go teach a nurse how to do her job. It's the, it's, ridiculous right yeah. so that's exactly what happened and so i was able to kind of find all the bugs in in the system i was able to work with their um their it it side to kind of tailor tailor a lot of our stuff and i was able to kind of get their product integrated into our bigger network and it wasn't just a small feed it was like 11 different hospitals and our, uh, one of our vice presidents actually said hey do you mind going to all the other sites and working with the end users training them on the software and uh, getting them getting them up to date. So that's where I started to realize that, you know what, that's where I'm interested. I'm interested in software implementation. What are some of the challenges in software implementation that can happen? And so, um, and what are some of the ways that we can work around it? You know, one of the things I, I learned um, over my, over the course of teaching people is that everyone is going to learn at a different pace, right? You're also going to have um, executives who are either going to really be upfront and say, Hey, I want this product or the complete opposite and say, Hey, get this stuff out of my face. I don't really care for it. And if I complain enough, it's going to go away. The truth is progress does not go away. It just takes longer, but eventually I was able to get everything done. And now I work on the implementation side for, um, for, um, in, in my organization. The cool thing is I'm, I'm at the forefront of seeing a lot of AI products that are kind of coming into the healthcare space. So I'll give you an example of something that I'm working on right now is something called Viz AI. I don't know if you've ever heard of them no. before, but they, they're an Israel, I think they're an Israeli company, but Viz AI, um, essentially what they do is when you have something called stroke, um, when you have a stroke, you have this very limited time where you can actually take um, countermeasures to, to, to basically save a person's life, but to also like reduce down the, the, the detriments that can happen. The minute like you start having a stroke, um, you know, your brain tissue starts to die. And, you know, if at a certain point afterwards, you just, you're not gonna, you're not gonna have the same level of, um, uh, same level of performance if you, you know, like, and quality of life, if you don't address it. So 
timing is very important. Well, this company said, look, one of the challenges that comes with trying to um, address strokes is just getting the imaging done and then getting the report to the end user so they can react to it, right? And get the person on the surgery table, right? So this company said, you know what? I have, we have an idea. Why don't we use AI and machine learning to help positively identify strokes as it's happening like while the patient is on the CT table, the images are being captured, sent to a server. The server runs it against an algorithm that says this person is having a stroke, sends out an alert to the entire stroke team via, via text message saying, hey, we have a patient, they have a stroke, get down here. And literally the, the entire process goes from like 45 minutes to less than five to 10 minutes. And now almost every hospital that I know is starting to incorporate them into their, um, into their, um, their uh, what do you call it, into their radiology suites to get AI built in. I think one of the biggest challenges we've had for AI in healthcare is that there hasn't necessarily been a lot of adoption. Healthcare is not the most easily adept in getting new products integrated because there's a huge level of trust that has to be built before people are like, okay, we, we, we want this. Um, and the reason for that is simple. It's because, you know, when you're trying to adopt something like a new car and if it doesn't work out well, you can just get a new car, right? You can't do that with a human yeah. life. You know, you don't want to take the responsibility of adopting a new product and then it somehow uh, negatively affects a person. So we're more, we're less likely to adopt new things. But what's happening is, and I've seen this over the last two, three years, the competent competency levels of our physicians um, in terms of using technology has gone up dramatically. If you look at a physician 20 years ago who was still like, oh, I, I want everything on a, on a piece of paper so I can sign off on it versus right now, if you ask a physician you know, who's had five years, 10 years of experience, they're like, I'm not signing anything. Like, I don't want to do anything. I want everything <laughs> on one screen built for efficiency, you know? So that, that, that dramatic shift is happening in healthcare. And I think this is one of the areas where a lot of companies, they can really do um, a lot and they can actually benefit a lot if they figure out ways to give the healthcare practitioners the ability to do their job much easier. Right now, the, the amount of work that's coming our way is crazy. So we, we always wanna be more efficient. And I think AI and machine learning can really make, um, make a lot of these uh, uh, providers' jobs a lot easier. Sorry, I have a tendency to rant. No, so no, if no. I'm just ranting, I, you I, just let me know. No, I love stop. that answer. I was just about to say, I'm so interested in this space. Please, the, yeah. these answers are the best when the guest just goes off. I love them. Yeah. Um, I, I'm really interested in the healthcare space too, just from research and reading. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've read a book by Dr. David Sinclair. I'm not sure if you know him, but he's a doctor um, focused all on, all on longevity of life. Um, so he, he has some, some amazing research on mice and rats in terms of your diets and how we, we're going to wear wearable devices in the future, but to perhaps predict a stroke or something of that manner. Um, so, so that's a really interesting area to me, just the fact that I believe in the future, it's very, very logical to state that in the future, you know, everyone wears an Apple watch now that tells you your heart rate. Why can't we have yep. that for, for predictions of a stroke, for, for, for indications of some sort of illness? Um, which is all done through data. So number one, that just indicates the amazing trend that I think is occurring for good, which is data um, within the scene of healthcare, which I believe will, will hugely benefit humanity in terms of longe longevity and also quality of life. So it's a very exciting area for me. I think I have the book back here somewhere. I'm not sure if you can see, but it's an amazing book. I definitely rec recommend you, you read it. Tell me about the NHS case study then, because the NHS recently um, launched a report stating that Palantir had some sort of 28% improvement in productivity of the waitlist, that is not a small amount. A 28% productivity improvement, in my view, is huge. Can you just indicate to me, um, firstly, what would that mean for your organization? If you have a productivity improvement of that scale, how important is that for an organization? So, so let's let's dig let's deep it. Let's first dive into why these inefficiencies happen in the first place. Okay. So what happens is when you're looking at a supply chain, you're looking at a product going from start to finish, and there's all these sorts of steps that have to happen in between to get to that point, right? Healthcare is a little bit weird in that there are times where you can't 100% predict everything that's going to happen. So an example is, let's say right now you need um, a CT scan, right? Well, we can do theoretically do 20 CT scans a day, right? 
So we have two CT scanners, we have 20. So that means we have a total capacity of doing 40 patients a day, right? This is great. We can do 40 people, but let's say the number of people goes up, like the number of people needing CAT scan goes up dramatically because of some kind of pandemic level event, right? What happens? How do you, how do you account for that? So there you have to figure out ways to add capacity or you, you become more efficient with the capacity you have because one of the things you can see historically, let's say five patients don't show up out of the 40 mm-hmm. because whatever reason they had to cancel their appointment. Well, guess what? If you can figure out how to communicate with that patient and slot them in for, um, for that specific thing, right, to get them in during that moment where someone else doesn't show up, that's huge. So one, you can improve communications to end users, which is patients, right? The other thing that you can do is prioritize who is actually going to need CT more than anyone else, right? So that this way you can segment two different subsets of the populations to each CT scanner. So an example is if you're ambulatory, if you can just walk on the CT scanner, we might be able to do your exam, even though you're slotted for 20 minutes, we can slot it for five, right? So one can be one machine can be um, allocated for people who can get scans done very quickly. And then we can allocate the other one to do it for people who require additional um, prep work or additional things, people that may need you know, more, um, more attention while they're doing it. And also the type of scan that we're doing, you wanna, you wanna segment out to the second person. So it's efficiencies like this that's all going to be revealed to you when you look at your data, because your data is essentially going to dictate how you should be operating. You know, I think a lot of times we get into this zone of siloed um, effects where we're only looking at it things from a broad view and not digging down into our data to see where we can be more efficient. So right now, just based on what I said, well, here's what we can do. We can either just say, well, you know what, we can schedule 40 people a day and that's it. We're not going to do anything more than that. Or we can say, well, we have the capacity to 40, but we could also probably do 60 if we figure out a way to be more efficient with our workflows. And that's where Palantir kind of comes in and says, look, where can we get this data? Where can we present it to the end users? And how do we make that, oper- how, how do we get it to the end users so that they can make oper- operationalized decisions, whether it's scheduling or anything else? The other area that's that's um, that's very cool, especially for you guys in the NHS. And it happens to me because mm. we have 11 hospitals in our network. Um, hospitals are, you know, within a certain distance of each other, right? So sometimes what happens is you have spare capacity at another facility that you might be able to use here. So, so I gave you an example of, yeah, we have 40, you know, 40 people that are allowed to, uh, that, that can get CAT scan today. But imagine you have a sister hospital maybe a few miles or I guess for you guys kilometers away, right? And I'm, I let's say at the time have an overabundance of patients and they have an underutilization of patients. Well, what if I could shift some of my patients to them, right? Essentially, if our, our um, EMR, our electronic medical records are all interconnected, they all, add, the images all end up in the same place, right? So Right there, you can say, well, you know what, even though my capacity is 40, I can book 60 and take the other 20 and book them to another facility that's literally like a a couple of miles away, you know, so that this way you don't have to tell the patient, hey, listen, I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait till next week. You know, instead, you could just say, well, you can wait till next week or you can go to a sister hospital that's Mm -hmm. only a couple of miles away and get your scan there. All your information and data will already be sent there. So you just go there and guess what? Now, now you get your scan done in the same day, you know, in which case now people are happy because guess what? One of the things about healthcare is we're always trying to make things faster. The worst thing you want to tell a patient is, Hey, come back next Tuesday. Like, yeah, really? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> t- t- I think that's so interesting and fascinating. Um, I am very optimistic in general, and especially in the context of data, I'm incredibly optimistic, especially when you have these companies like Palantir, Weijo, in which their, their mantra is using data for good. So I'm incredibly excited as to what that can that can mean um, from a practical sense within healthcare and with all, within all other industries. I think the NHS was just kind of the first conception point of benefits of data utilization effectively within healthcare. It's so exciting in my opinion, and, and it literally, I imagine will result in saving of lives. See, see the old model was always around adding more, right? Yeah. So if your capacity was 
40 and you consistently had more than 45, 60 patients, instead of figuring out a way to take the patient and have them do it at another location, you know what the answer was? We need more scanners. We need more techs. We need more nurses. We need more doctors. And then they would be over encumbered with so many um, people where literally now you have people just sitting around. You have machines that are underutilized. You have nurses just, you know, playing on their iPhone. Like that's not how you bring efficiency. All that does is add to cost, right? The way that you become more efficient is utilizing the resources that you have in a more efficient way. That's what Palantir can help do. Okay, so tell me that, let's say your organization adopted Palantir Foundry and you saw a 20% improvement in productivity through the means that you mentioned, which was incredibly interesting. What in the world is a competitor going to do in that situation? How are they going to, to, to achieve that level of productivity and match um, the scale at which you're, you're, you're utilizing patients and, and helping people? What is a competitor going to do? Are they going to perhaps uh, use Palantir Foundry? Are they going to invest in their own IT team? Are they going to um, adopt a range of different products and, and mesh them together? Do you see, do you see what I mean? Because I, I struggle to, to see a rise over what competitors will do to meet, to meet the productivity standpoints. And I've had a few different uh, answers from guests in the past, but I'd be really interested to, to hear your response. So in, in healthcare, one of the things is that we like to take a safe approach. So if we see a large you know, organization utilizing a product and that product is giving them efficiency and it's proven, we're going to go with that product. You know, <laughs> We're not going to try and test something that doesn't work. The one thing that healthcare we don't want to do is test things. We want finalized products that work, right? There are certain organizations like hospital chains um, that are research-based that are always trying to figure out how to do more, right? But we're not one. We are a public service. We're a public healthcare uh, system and we provide the public uh, service. So we want to make sure that the product that we get works. So other companies, other other industries may see Palantir and say, well, maybe we can make a competitive, uh, a competitive product that's separate. In healthcare, we don't have the expertise for that. Our focus most of the time is on patient care. So we're not going to try to build something. We're always going to try to, you know, adopt something that works. So right now, the fact that the um, that Palantir was able to kind of bring that efficiency to the NHS brings perfect use cases for organizations like mine to say, hey, look, Palantir was able to do this for the NHS. Maybe they can do it for us. You know, so let's let's get them on board. Let's let them trial in a very short period of time, see if any of our hospitals like the product and then expand on it to a much uh, to a to a broader audience, in which case then we will account. Then we'll literally get it across our entire network. And now we're moving. We've moved away from the silo model. So what happened in the past was that when when hospitals bought a product, they would buy it for themselves. It would be supported by that hospital. They'd have they'd hire people to support that product. Now we're all enterprise. We're enterprise based. So right now I support eleven different hospitals with in my organization. I, I wasn't hired to support one hospital. I'm not focusing on one hospital. I may be stationed at a hospital working, you know, with end users here and there. But for the most part, I could be. They could say, "Hey, Chris, can you help out this facility?" Hey, Chris, can you? And that's where companies like Service Now have really like um, understood that this was something that was going to be a big requirement, that they saw that there's um, across organizations, there's going to be a need where um, there's interconnectivity, right? Because we're moving away from a siloed model. So now we're all, we're all enterprise-based. Every, every healthcare organization that I know is at this point moving to an enterprise model. It's very few, very few hospitals are operating independently now. Wow, that's so fascinating. And Sankar mentioned in the recent conference call with Morgan Stanley analysts, something that really stood out to me, and I think it's gone underappreciated. In the government space, Palantir's product is collaborative. Um, governments, for example, the US, federal, the US government, all the agencies within, they, many of them use Palantir, and Sankar's word and terminology um, was basically that these, these organizations within are collaborative, they're not competitive, they share and mirror the the reports and the, the network effects that occur. Uh, so that's so fascinating to me to see that that's perhaps happening within within the healthcare scene too. And I can imagine within the NHS, once again, that's happening too. If you have network effects occurring or a use case that's created in one hospital, that's mirrored. And that just creates the biggest competitive moat that I can think of. It really um, is, is interesting to see. Tell me then, because I can't imagine that many people in the, in the healthcare scene can code um, very well, uh, perhaps 
on on the job or something. I can't imagine that a nurse is, is specialized in yeah. coding. What's the what's the importance of a, a low code no code product? And you mentioned um, on the podcast yesterday something that stood out to me, which was the fact that uh, you work a lot a lot with I believe it was Excel. Tell me the importance of a low code no code product and how once again that can deliver value and really provide utility for the healthcare scene. So so when you're working in healthcare, one of the things is that your your basic training is always going to be around actual healthcare, right? You're not going to learn how to code and everything else. There are people in the organization like myself who are starting to kind of say, well, I want to I want to help in, you know, create a product around all the fundamental knowledge that I've gathered over the last 10, 20 years. So there are people trying to learn, but it's not, ne- it's not nearly the level that's needed to like disrupt the entire market. Mm-hmm. So I think number one is you need to have end users who are trying to improve things, right? They're always trying to make things better, but you want to give them an environment where they don't need uh, an entire year or two worth of schooling to, to, you know, realize their product. So right now, let's say, let's say you were a nurse, right? And you're, you're on the floor for the last 20 years, you've been working. And one of the things that you've seen, there's been inefficiencies on a certain way of doing things right now, you, you want to go up to your, to your, um, your head nurse or your director and say, Hey, listen, I think we can do this in a better way. Right. But I, I need, so the person's going to say to you, well, what's your, what's your data? What's your breakdown? Like, you can't just give me an anecdotal evidence and say, hey, you know, we need to make operational changes because you think that you need them. So one of the things that you need to do is you need to prove your case, right? And the way that you do that is by being able to present data, right, that's out there in the world right? In the EMR that's already exists, but make it in a way that's structured and then create a plan. Once you create a plan, you can say, hey, look, this is the data that shows that this pro- the plan that I'm trying to adopt, right, will work. Okay, no problem. That becomes your baseline, right? You adopt the plan and as things improve, you use that and you, you relay that back to that same person and say, look, this is where we were two weeks ago, this is where we are today, because now you have a comparison, right? The old data versus the new data. And you can see that there were efficiencies that were brought by, by, um, by changing processes around. So that's where the low code, no code environment really comes in because gathering that data is really hard, especially in an environment like an EMR. Like that was one of the biggest challenges that I had when I was in my managerial role where I wanted to make changes but no one would support me because I didn't have the data to back it up. Well, eventually I was able to get access to a data warehouse, but the data warehouse, if you ever seen, seen what it looks like, it's just a jumble of data. Like you really have to piece things together. Mm-hmm. Luckily I had experience in Excel. So I was able to kind of break things down, make it much more manageable and much more visually appealing. So that when I went to my, uh, my leadership to say, Hey, this is the change I would like to make. And they said to me, well, where's your, where's your data? Here it is. And I was able to make all the changes that I needed to, right? Without any secondary questions. And then once those efficiencies were gained, I was able to, in two weeks into a month, I was able to do a presentation and say, this is where we were and this is where we are now. And that's where people were like, this guy's an innovative thinker. We need him on, on, our, on, on other projects. And it just boosted up my career, right? And it's the same thing. So now, People are starting to unlock the value of all the data that they collect. And healthcare, we collect so much data. So it's all about right now getting it, getting access to tools like this into the end user's hands. There was one really interesting interview that um, Palantir had had kind of pu- published on, um, on their uh, website. And it was around a, a young girl, a German um, engineer in the aerospace for Airbus, right? And she worked in... In, um, in a very like technical role, but um, she had gotten hurt somehow and she wasn't able to really fulfill that role. So they gave her the task of working on Foundry to see if there's any way that she can bring some efficiencies. I don't know if you saw that, but that was, huh? I'll send it to you. It's yeah. amazing. And within a very short period of time, she was able to build products that were actually used wow. by people in Airbus to actually bring about efficiencies in manufacturing. But that's because she had that technical experience that the ones that you needed in order to build a product. And now you're able to kind of take and, and mass adopt it across an organization. So it's a very interesting way, like getting 
getting people on the ground access to tools that are going to make them efficient, right? But also give them an ability to kind of improve their own um, careers is going to be big for um, for adoption purposes, you know? And that's the, that's the other part of Foundry coming down to the ground level because we also want a, a way to get certified in this because if you are good, you can create products on top of Foundry. There are other organizations that are going to want you to work for them. So having that badge or Foundry on your resume is going to be a, a game changer, you know? So I'm sure that you've come across um, resumes where you've seen like experience with certain products and you're like, yeah, I need to hire this guy because this is a product that we use also, or this is a product that we're trying to use. That is fascinating. And they did launch the certification program um, that I mm-hmm. haven't gone into much detail about. I'd love you to send me that, 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 that video about the girl. I haven't actually seen that beforehand. It's amazing. I think your experience within the healthcare scene already has bring, brought so much value to this podcast. It's amazing how um, you can just democratize data and, um, as you said, boost careers through enabling applications being built on Foundry, um, efficiencies being created. I can't even begin to comprehend how important that would be um, in every industry. Last question on, on specifically the healthcare scene. Tell me about a digital twin, the ability to simulate and um, and, and test different scenarios from data. Very interesting. This is incredibly interesting to me. And, and I think once again, brings, brings productivity improvements and relates back to Palantir's time to value proposition. So in the context of, of healthcare, how important is a digital twin for your organization to simulate and to predict um, different uh, events that may occur? For example, in the, in the context of COVID, I can imagine it was incredibly important for the NHS. So I would say, this is probably the most important part of the new things that are happening. So an example is you have these desperate uh, disparate sources of data, right? You have radiology data, you have um, data with within the patient information um, where there's certain allergies, you have prior medication data, you have surgical notes from a surgery that was done five years ago. You've got, you know, um, I don't know, you've got demographic information. Now, here's the thing. Each one individually tells you a very small part of a larger picture, right? But when you combine all of that data together, you can create a digital twin, right? So basically now you have an entire outlay of what this person is. Now, here's the best part of a digital twin. You can test on the digital twin. So you can say, what if I gave this patient this medication? Well, guess what? The digital twin at the same time, if they reject it, because guess what? There was a prior allergy that was recorded 15 years ago. Guess what happens? You won't give them that, that medication, right? You, you, let's say the patient um, had some sort of, uh, some sort of um, heart issue, right? Five years ago, six years ago, and they came in this year with some chest pains. Guess what? That digital twin will be able to identify like, hey, progressively, this person's heart has been having an issue. Maybe we need to get this type of scan. The other thing is there's secondary diagnostics um, that that happened with this patient that may not have been necessarily recognized by a physician when they, when they initially took care of the patient. So an example is, let's say you had a headache, you went to your, your GP and your GP, you know, marked it down. This person has recurrent headaches, um, but it only happens during the summertime, right? You know, you could be having a heat stroke. So the guy mm-hmm. said, no, you know what? Just go home, relax. You're fine. You don't really, you know, you don't have anything going on. You just need to stay away from the sun. Well, what if it's something that happened in your past where during, during times during the summer, you tend to do other things, right? Or you're more high likely to get, um, you ingest food around that time that may or may not be, you know, causing you to have this underlying issue. All those things are recorded in all sorts of data when you go to the healthcare, when you go to your healthcare provider, but they're located in all sorts of areas. So when you do get a CAT scan eventually, and they see like, wait a second, no, this, this thing, even though it was five years ago, he was only having minor headaches. Now he's coming back with bigger headaches. I can see that there was a small nodule in his brain somewhere that's growing. We better look at that and see if there's something that we can do to surgically remove it, right? Or what are the percentages that Christian will be able to survive the surgery? And instead, we should just do chemotherapy and observe it, right? So it gives you an idea and a percentage chance of, <coughs> sorry, 
It's okay. I should probably get that cough checked out. <laughs> um, <laughs> of what, um, what likely could happen to you five years, six years, 10 years in the future. The other thing is with a lot of great data, like let's say progressively, you at the age of 20, you at the age of 25, you at the age of 30, if you see that weight gain, if you see cholesterol start to build up, what you can do is as your GP speak to you and say, hey, Christian, look, the one thing I've noticed is that when you were 20, this is where you were baseline. And at 30, this is where you were. Maybe you need to stop eating so much bacon because your cholesterol is starting to shoot up. So instead of, you know, reacting after you already had a stroke or a heart attack, the doctors are, you know, progressively, well, um, telling you pre uh, preventatively how to change your lifestyle around so you won't have as much. The other thing is it can even probably, if you have enough of an accurate model, you can kind of predict when you're going to have serious issues in the future, if you continue on your current course and whether or not it would be a good idea to kind of like do a procedure um, early in your life when you're still able to recover from it rather than waiting until something, something happens in the future, right? So an example of that is breast cancer, where right now in the past, you know, people would get, get tested for, uh, they would get their mammograms and everything done well, one of the things they have now is genetic testing. And genetic testing, if you have something called the BRCA1 gene, you have a high uh, disposition for getting breast cancer. So sometimes women, instead of waiting until they get breast cancer, in which case it's already too late and it's metastasized all over, they'll, you know, they'll get the procedure done beforehand after, you know, so this way, the, chance, the, the, the likelihood of them getting breast cancer is none because they've, they've already had a mastectomy and they've had it in an early part of their life which means they can fully recover from it. You know, that if they were in their, in their maybe 40, uh, their late fifties, they may not be able to recover as, as well. You know, so these are the kinds of things that in healthcare that are happening where we're always trying to be more preventative rather than um, reactive towards the end. Right. And with more data and especially combining all this, like all these desperate data sources, you can actually do really well in um, getting a patient, um, uh, getting building efficiencies in patient's life. That is fascinating. I'm so interest, interested in the space um, and just your expertise once again, really showing that how, I mean, such an informative analysis on, on how a company like Palantir could really benefit an organization. It sounds like Palantir could be a winner takes all. And I was doing some research today um, on this. Is there potential that an organization like Palantir has any competitors? I know you made a, a video on Databricks um, which will market themselves literally as the Palantir da competitor. Data walk. Da data, data, walk. Walk, data walk, sorry. Data walk, sorry. <laughs> they literally market themselves as a Palantir competitor. And I, I've, yeah. I, I read some of their reports, it must have been over a year ago, and I thought, how strange is this? Um, and you made a really good video on it just recently. So is there any other organization or platform or software or ability to interoperate different softwares that thereby can enable um, a, a, a real competitor to Palantir, specifically within the healthcare scene. And what's your thought on, on Databricks on data or DataWalk, whatever they're called, DataWalk? Um, I would say DataWalk has a very specialized niche where they're going to be successful, oh, okay. right? I, I think, so the one thing is that Palantir doesn't need to, to be the monolith. No, like, I know a lot of people would like Palantir to be that monolith where, you know, they, they have the largest market share of every industry, but that's not what typically happens. It's very hard to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't be really meaningful in a certain space, right? And, and be, be able to cap, capitalize on that. So the two models that I would say is, um, and this is something that CyberFam had brought up to, brought to my attention when, when we were kind of discussing it. So you have something like Google. Google does majority of the world search, right? There's very, this, the number two is like almost nothing, right? In terms of search, they're literally at the top of their search game. So they've developed a, a, a thing around it, but here's the thing. Now their entire business is kind of focusing on that search search model. And Microsoft took a, took a different approach. They said, look, we don't need to be number one in everything. We're happy being number two in everything. We don't want to be number one in one category. We want to be number two in every category. And I think that's that's one of the things that Palantir right now may or may not end up, um, uh, well, I'm pretty sure they're going to be number one in most industries, but that's, that's to be left, that's left to be seen. I think instead, one of the things that um, I'm starting to see with Palantir now, 
with regards to being a monolith is that they're understanding that we need to hit every industry that we can, right? And gain as much traction with our products in that industry and be able to capitalize on that. And they're happy to now at least take a take a position. Companies like DataWalk, Databricks and everything else, they, well, not Databricks, just DataWalk, they're coming off to people saying we are, they're not saying we're a Palantir competitor. They're saying we're a Palantir alternative. I know that sometimes that people are like, well, isn't that one and the same? And it's like, no, it just means that, you know, they're trying to go for a smaller piece of the pie, right? Palantir is trying to kind of grab a, a like large chunks of a pie. These guys are just waiting for crumbs to kind of fall onto their table. And this way that they're, they're, they're like, um, I don't know if you saw this movie War Dogs in that um, war, uh, one of the scenes, they were like, it's like, I'm a rat. I'm fine with just mm -hmm. eating the crumbs off the big table, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's what Data Walk, a little bit kind of their business model is right now saying, look, we don't need to do everything that Palantir, um, that Palantir does. We're fine eating the small crumbs. So that's why, like, if you look at some of the contracts that they have, they're for really small projects, but they're getting contracts, which is, you know, which is good. So, okay, it's all good and well talking about Palantir and how amazing the product is perceived to be. Tell me about um, an investing philosophy. How do you find a fair valuation for the company? I'm not sure how much of an investor you are, but from my perspective, I usually um, find a company that I'm really interested in, allocate a piece of capital, 10% of my liquid capital perhaps, that I'm, that I'm happy to put in. And then over time, I basically, um, I, I, I dollar cost average down. So tell me about your investing approach. I mean, it's all good and well having a great company, Palantir, but if you buy too high from an investment standpoint, it just seems illogical. So have you been buying recently? Um, um, and tell me about your investing philosophy, some advice perhaps you would give um, it just in general, obviously not financial advice, um, but the, the, the philosophy on investing, what do you do when you have a company like Palantir? You know they have a great product, but you don't want to just hodl uh, a 25, 30, 40 dollars. Do you dollar cost average down or, or are you not bothered and you just focus on the, on the actual business? So, so here's the thing. For, from my investing philosophy, half of my portfolio is always in indexes. Okay. Mainly because I, I usually like to play a safe game where I'm not dealing with too much too much volatility. So half of my portfolio is usually in that. Then I look for a lot of companies. Well, first, then I look for sectors. The, the rest of my portfolio is trying to find sectors that are growing and growing exponentially because those are going to be providing you with the top line um, growth of your portfolio that can't be replicated in, um, in just a traditional just buy an index. So one of the things I see is like AI, ML, that um, 5G, a lot of these areas are growing and they're growing exponentially. And then what I do is within those sections, I allocate money towards different companies that are moving um, in the right direction or, you know, or basically are gaining market share and everything else. So for me, with when it comes to Palantir is that I have a sizable position in Palantir um, relative to my other positions. But for the most part, I've realized that I see the value every day kind of just growing and growing for it. So I try not to focus too much on numbers. I focus more on the tech because if the tech is good, the numbers will eventually come. That's not to say that Palantir doesn't have its own level of execution risk. And there is a, there is a saying that I, well, there is a philosophy that I know is that the best product does not always win. It's mm. the best product that has great marketing that tends to win. Palantir, in my opinion, hasn't done a very good, good job of marketing itself outside of the core niche that it was trying to approach up until the last two years, right? They, they, they've shied away from signing contracts. Like it just didn't make sense how they could possibly grow their business. So in terms of technology, they're really good from what I can tell. But in terms of execution, it's not, it hasn't been good. And that's the part that always stops me from taking a much more sizable position in them. But the one thing that, I, that I'm that i doing every day is that as I'm looking at Palantir content, I'm building Palantir content, it's reinforcing what I'm thinking. And all I've been doing is just DCAing half my paycheck into Palantir. So anytime I get paid, I already know I have a fixed price that I'm going, a, a fixed amount that I'm going to be buying regard, irregardless of the price. Because I see Palantir based on the modeling that I've done um, be around a 200 to $300 billion market cap company by 2030, which for a lot of people are like, what do you mean? That's, that's not enough. Like, dude, that's, if you're trying to invest in an index and trying to get those kinds of returns, it's, it's especially right now with this market cap hovering around 20 billion, 
that's 10x growth. That's huge, right? The other thing that that my, the way that I do it is, uh, which is DCAing, that helps me is that early in my career, I made some mistakes in that I went to gung ho and just went all in on one company and then when things didn't work out i would have a nervous breakdown and you know like so so i realized that i didn't have the stomach to weather large volatility moves like that so one of the things i realized and that what gives me happiness is dcaing where what i can do is i can open my portfolio and the day the palantir is really high yay great i'm great my portfolio is doing great the day it's down it's almost like yeah this week i'm getting a discount on the palantir that i was gonna buy anyway so now a lot of that nervousness is gone so a lot of and there there's a saying that really goes with investing like stop investing like you need to invest with your with your head, not your stomach. Because if you can't volatile, you can't um on you can't deal with the volatility, you can't stomach the volatility, then you shouldn't be in the market. So right now I I figure out a way to be able to stomach the volatility by making sure that I have a um a uh, an efficient way to allocate money towards it. I'm definitely not like the suchins of the world where I'm just gonna go 100 percent all in and and ride the <laughs> and ride that that I just can't do it. Can't do it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm, to be honest, taking more of a Sachin approach. I'm not fully in, but a large portion of my portfolio is. And I'm fine with taking the risk. I mean, I don't mind seeing my portfolio cut in half um, as long as I'm comfortable with the business. And once again, it's kind of coming back to that dollar cost averaging approach. My approach originally was, as I said, I, I allocated 10% of my liquid capital, I'd say, um, to, towards Palantir, but I didn't put it all in at once. I put some at 25, some at 20. I doubled my position at 15. And then I'm looking to double again, perhaps if we go back to $10. But apart from that, I'm, I'm still have a few, um, a, a few percentage points, if you like, of, of capital in which I'm happy to put in Palantir. Um, so that's at least my approach. I think people go wrong when they see an innovative company and it's at $40 and they just think, well, I'm in. And then, you know, and then, and then they lose a big time because it doesn't matter which valuation and price you get in at. Uh, in comparison to just the underlying business. You mentioned there's something really interesting, and I want to talk about China just in the few minutes we have left. But before we do so, last question on Palantir. You said the best product doesn't always win. That's really, in I've theorized over this before because I'm interested in the blockchain too. And I think, I don't think Bitcoin's, the, well, I don't think BTC is the best product uh, when it comes to cryptocurrency availability. I think there's some really interesting unforgotten wars uh, in, in, the, in the blockchain scene one called the protocol war and it basically caused a hard fork of loads of different bitcoins um, creating btc creating bsv creating bitcoin cash and before i ramble on for too long i speculated over the possibility of btc um, not failing because it has the network effects in its favor yet i don't think that the underlying technology of btc is superior to some other blockchains so can you give me perhaps some examples maybe you have or um, a deeper insight into why you don't think the best top technology always wins? Surely, I mean, if you look at Tesla, they had the best technology but didn't market for such a long time. Do you think the two industries are comparable, namely uh, operating system data and uh, a car like Tesla? And, and why perhaps some more insight into um, why you don't think the best top technology always wins? So here's a great example. Sure. In 2008, 2009, if I asked you what was the best phone out there, you wouldn't have said iPhone. You probably would have said BlackBerry. Everyone had a BlackBerry. BlackBerry was the best product by far, hands down, the best product that was out there. The thing with BlackBerry is that they also had the best security software, right? If you look at BlackBerry in terms of efficiency, they, they were like bar none the best that are out there. But the one area that BlackBerry could not capitalize on was making their product consumer friendly via an app store and everything else and getting developer support. So there wasn't enough mass adoption of BlackBerry OS. And what, what did Apple do? Apple came in, ate up all of BlackBerry's market share. And that's where what ends up happening is sometimes people are too focused on the product and the technology without understanding that you need to have great marketing around it. Apple also made things very nice to look at, very visually appealing right? A lot of the end users, the, also the, the experiences on it were very intuitive. BlackBerry ended up not making the most intuitive product, you know, and they, they got locked into their keyboard, you know, whether or not they wanted to move away from the mm -hmm. chiclet 
things. They had some internal struggles, right? So right now, I would say the same thing happens with regards to Palantir. They have a great product. It's probably the best product that's out there. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean a competitor can't create a product with similar features that's much more user-friendly, user-efficient, and take away market share, right? And who knows? Palantir may end up being the best product that no one ever heard of. That's And there's so many companies that have that, the best product that no one ever heard of. You know, um, there's there's plenty of examples. I can't really think of too many off the top of my head, um, but but I'm sure that we could probably discuss that in the future. Awesome. I'm, I'm sure. Have you ever tried something? You're like, wow, I can't believe no one else recognized how great this is. And it just kind of died on the vine. I think the example of Blackberry is, is amazing. That's a great example. Um, just from from knowledge. Uh, I mean, it's hard to think of one product, but I'm sure there are many. And I, and I do think it's a great point. I was just playing devil's advocate there, but I think it's a great, great point that you mentioned about BlackBerry. That didn't actually come to my mind originally. Um, but the fact that, yes, they had the best technology back in the day and everyone was using their phones, but they failed to innovate and they failed to scale and, and change their product to match the, the consumer's needs. And Apple basically took their pie, which is so interesting to see. I would say, um, a last point on Palantir before we get into China, Palantir, I think the heavy lifting has been done over the past 18 years. I... As an investor, I think you're betting and you're, you're looking at probabilities in some sense. I think it's likely, to, and it's realistic to state, that Palantir have the best product in the market. They have the best use cases, um, and, and they're really out-innovating anyone else within the CM, for example, Snowflake, in my view. It's a question of now execution, as you said. Can they sell the product effectively? I would be shocked, honestly. I would be very shocked and ashamed if Peter Thiel, Alex Cart, and these incredible minds... Um, couldn't sell the product effect effectively. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how they approach this. But I think, as as mentioning um, at, the, at the very beginning, the, the use of the the developer community and perhaps modular, um, modularity within the product is really good to see. And I'm happy to see this. And I think Sankar's recent commentary with the Morgan Stanley analysts has kind of validified my concerns and and eased them slightly. The fact that they're focusing on, modular, on modularity, they're focusing on the sales force, they're changing the cost structure, they recognize the failures in the past. So overall, I'm really happy um, to see. The, the part that I thought was the most amazing part of that was something that it was my own personal experience, that they said they were treating IT ad, as adversaries. I'm like, you, you guys would really like, that is the dumbest thing that you could do in terms of sales. So you're trying to sell a product, a software, and you're trying to go straight to the business user, like an executive, <laughs> rather than going to IT first. Dude, we, IT is one of those things where we can either be your best friend or your worst nightmare. Because guess what? You convince an executive sponsor, to, I mean, executive uh, president to adopt Foundry. And now you go to IT and says, hey guys, do you mind helping us, you know, get this message out to everyone? Dude, we will throw a monkey wrench into your entire adoption plan. We will slow walk every ticket that we get about it. We will ignore users. Do not ever mess with IT. You need IT in your corner. Now, here's the best part, though. We're very reasonable and we'll work with people, but you have to treat us with a little respect. And the fact that they would go over our heads and they would go over the heads of IT folk at corporations that was not a smart move. Right now, I'm glad that they're pivoting away from that model and they're going to IT and saying, listen, let's go to IT first. If IT doesn't even back us, then there's no point of going to the business user because I, at that point, IT will, be in, will end up being like that wall, right? Between us getting a successful contract done. So there we are. So I, that that was that literally that was music to my ears. That's so interesting, yeah, and that's that's probably because I have I work in IT, so you yeah. Know. <laughs> I, I noticed I noticed that too. The fact that they mentioned Sanko mentioned specifically the the pivot away from, um, in, at least from my understanding, um, going towards the business first to kind of pitch the product, and now they're going towards the IT team. It seems so. So perhaps a more um, simultaneous and better way of doing it in terms of collaboration in comparison to competition as such, which is fascinating. I'm shocked, honestly. Um, and last point on Palantir before we get on to China, because we only have a few minutes left. I'm shocked how bad they've done uh, in the sales department, considering that they have supposedly the best talent in the world and the best, the best product. But let's get on to China, because it's fascinating. And we had a little conversation on Twitter about this. China, political risks. In the recent days, there's been a pivot away from perhaps the risks of, of investing within China. I, I know you have your opinions and I was speculating over 
potential Alibaba just investment. I, I, I haven't got any Chinese stocks. I stated my, my portfolio is mainly Palantir and Tesla. Um, I haven't got any Chinese stocks, but you look at these valuations of companies like Alibaba and you just question, Jesus, this is a huge undervaluation in comparison to the real business intrinsic value. Um, it doesn't take a, a, a genius to really identify that. So can you tell me the, the political risks in China? Are you concerned about um, investing in Chinese stocks? Do you hold any Chinese equities? And do you agree that Alibaba's intrinsic value is most definitely higher than the, the current price? The only position I have in Chinese stocks is probably due to my investment in some indexes yeah. um, that are broader market, which means I don't really have a choice that the, just the broader market index yeah. includes Chinese stocks, right? So, in, but I'm not, in, so, so that's my only exposure to China. I don't have any other uh, companies that I've invested. I did in the past invest in Alibaba, but I got out a long time ago because one of the things that I don't like to see is political turmoil um, because no matter how good the company does, no matter how efficient they are, how good they are producing profits, if I can't realize those profits, that means that I really can't do much with it. Now, there are some investors who are willing to take on that risk. You have the Charlie Mungers and the Ray Dalios who think that this is just a blip. You know, the Chinese communist regime, uh, socialist regime is just, you know, going to let these companies keep growing. The one thing I noticed about Chinese politics is that there's a lot of insecurity in their politicians. The one thing that they do not want is companies to have so much power that they can leverage those that power against them. And that's the, that's what happened with Jack Ma. Jack Ma was buddy buddy with the last regime. So when Xi came in, you know, he gave Jack Ma an opportunity to, you know, keep things the status quo. And Jack Ma instead of keeping the status quo was critical. And the minute that he was critical, guess what happened? He disappeared. Right? <laughs> that kind of uh, that kind of like engagement is is terrible. Those optics are bad. Now, my thing is, we know that we're headed into an adversarial conflict with China. Not physically, you know, we're not going to launch nukes at each other. We're not. But the U.S. is pivoting away from China. So. Why would I necessarily want to be invested in a sector that could be shut down by where they are, right? So right now, let's say the Chinese and the Americans, they get into some kind of conflict, you know, Cold War scenario. China could just say, you know what? All these companies that are listed over there, we're going to do, we, you, you can't do business with the U.S. anymore. You can't li be listed over there. Or the U.S. could sanction these Chinese companies because of something that China did. Like right now, there's a huge question, China supporting Russia in the Ukraine matter, the US is going to impose sanctions on China, possibly. Well, how does that affect a, a domestic Chinese um, company? Well, negatively, I assume because of a lot of the sanctions and everything that are going to be uh, that are going to affect it, whether it be in a primary or secondary or tertiary way. So it's going to limit their business growth. So why would I look to their past performance as an indicator for their future growth, especially when I see a future where it's going to be in an adversarial role in an adversarial country. So there's too many points of leverage that 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 can be exerted by either side of the of the equation, in which case it makes the investment risky. And that's the thing. Do I see Alibaba growing? Yeah, of course. I think Alibaba is going to be a great, you know, big company. But the thing is, will I be ever be able to get my capital out of Alibaba? And will I be able to do it in, in, in an efficient way where I'm not trying to sue an entire the communist regime because I invested in a company with a VIE structure, mm. which they were okay with yesterday, but now all of a sudden they're having doubts about today? You know, why would I want to allocate my re money to that? I and think I think a lot of institutional investors are probably thinking the same exact thing. Definitely. Um, the, on the topic of the VA structure, I'm, I'm interested to see, and I don't know the answer, whether Charlie Munger and Ray Dalio and all these large-time investors, whether they have um, Chinese stocks on the Hong Kong market, in which I believe... Um, or if they've invested directly into China or something, or if they're using the VIE structure, because I know um, for large institutions, there'll be methods of getting around that VIE structure in which is definitely more speculative. So it'll be interesting to see on the topic of um, of, of the VIE structure, I was looking into it recently. And I made some Chinese investments when I first started investing, which was very young. Um, and some of them did well. I invested in Alibaba and then got out when it dipped down and it did fairly well, the investment. Um, I invested in some mm -hmm. other electric car companies, which, Honestly, I 
probably a bad investment looking back at it. But um, I, I view the VIE structure as a political chess piece. And we saw yeah. the US recently um, at least warn about a delisting of four explicit companies. Now, these were tiny companies that really have no validity. It wasn't an Alibaba. But in my view, that was the chess piece moving forward, stating if you don't change your stuff um, to the Chinese, mm -hmm. then, then we're going to do this to more companies. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Once again, as you said, um, I know just from a cybersecurity perspective, China have been um, very... Uh, aggressive in the cybersecurity space, even though the, the media doesn't report it much. And there were some reports recently by a cybersecurity expert stating that China have associated some leverage within the cybersecurity space with, within the US um, to basically act as a chess piece once again. And I'll be interested to see whether the Ukraine crisis um, does exaggerate and, and, and really emphasize and highlight the issue of China and the US and Russia. Um, yeah. So, so once again, I agree with your points completely. The fact that this is some sort of political political game, and there's so many U.S. companies that I'm more likely to invest in because of better business models and less risk. So, the fact that I even have to worry about the Communist Party um, potentially delisting a stock or not being happy with an investment that I have is it's just something that that I don't think I'm ready to take. Um, I think you're going to say something there. No, no, no. Uh, I was, I was having a, I, was, I lost my train of thought, but you can go on. <laughs> yeah, Sorry yeah. about that. <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's just fascinating to see, in my view, how this chess piece of VIE structures, um, the cybersecurity space is heating up, the tensions with Russia is heating now. If China does invade Taiwan, um, then I think it will be dangerous. And the US has that chess piece that they can play, namely the delisting of huge Chinese equities. And I mean, we saw that, that there were some severe consequences and sanctions put, imposed on Russia. So I think it's fairly plausible to state that the same could happen to, um, to Chinese equities if, if worse comes to worst. Yep. Right, we've approached the hour mark. Um, I don't want to keep you for too long, so yep. I'm sure you're very busy. Thank no, you so no much for coming on. Um, it was no, great to speak to you. The, the fact that you have that, you that industry insight into the healthcare scene is just spectacular. And I'm sure people yeah. will find so much value from that, from that conversation. I can, I I can tell you by 2030, the, the the healthcare system that we see today is no longer going to be there. It's going to be completely yeah. different. I'm glad you mentioned wearables and sensors yeah. and all this. That is coming down the pipeline. Let me tell you, as as um, as the technologies become more efficient, bandwidth becomes more efficient via 5G. You know, sensors become smaller. You're going to see a lot more, a lot more products that are developed around it. The the, the one product I would say look into is something called Dexcom. Mm -hmm. Like diabetes is a huge issue around the world, and Dexcom um, lets you track your diabetes in a very efficient way. And I mean, they've they've gone, they've grown exponentially. And um, yeah, and I think there's a lot of companies that are creating products that are now going to be linked via like a, a smartphone, right? Where the data is being sent to a smartphone, the smartphone acts as an edge device, does all the processing and then sends that data back to a server out in, 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 into the ether. And then which case now you can have platforms like Palantir leverage that data at the end user level to see if there's been progressive changes, in which case create almost like customized alerts. So there's, like I said, there's so many possibilities out there. Like I could speak to it better for, for days. So, but I, that's where I see everything going. Yeah, no, I agree. And as I stated before, my, my interest in the healthcare scene and just in data in general has led me towards um, the wearable devices, the Apple watches now track everything. I mean, you have some whoop bands and I think it's called an elder ring or something strange in which tracks your, yeah. your heart rate, it tracks everything you eat, uh, your sleep, etc. Why can't that be yeah. leveraged on a more uh, innovative scale towards the cloud, towards edge AI, and thereby perhaps your doctor or GP could, could use that data and, and perform some analysis on it. So I agree completely. Innovation is coming. Palantir, I think, is going to be a core fundamental for the next five years, 10 years. Uh, in the terms of, of, of software and data. Thank you so much for coming. It's excellent to speak yeah, to you. And please tell you everyone where they can find you before we wrap up. Yeah, you can just find me on YouTube and on Twitter. It's just Chris Patel 99. On YouTube, it's just Chris Patel. And uh, yeah, and that's about it. Thank you so much. And I'll see you very soon. All right, you too, man. Take care.